today we are going to answer the question, what is sanctification and what does perseverance of the saints mean? And we're going to answer questions like, how do we grow in Christian maturity? What's the difference between justification that we focused on last week and sanctification? What is God's role and our role in sanctification? What does the term baptism of the Holy Spirit mean? And is it different than this idea of being filled and empowered by the Spirit? Do you need a special filling of the Holy Spirit? Can Christians lose their salvation? We're going to go there today. And how can you have assurance that you're saved? So we're going to cover quite a bit this morning. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can go deep in these topics and better know you, better understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, better have assurance of our salvation that we know we are going to be with you when we die. And so I just pray that this would be a clear presentation to help each person here feel more confident in their walk with you. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start with what is sanctification? You would define sanctification as a progressive work of God and believers that make us progressively free from sin and more like Christ. So the goal of sanctification, I say, is to become more like Jesus. You're purging out sin and you're having more Christ-like character in your life. So before we go into deeper sanctification understanding, let's talk about just briefly what's the difference between justification from last week and sanctification. So justification, we said, is your legal standing before God, whereas sanctification is an actual internal condition of your heart. Justification is one time for all. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you have a right standing before God. But sanctification is continuous through your whole life. It is a process, not a moment. Justification is entirely God's work, but in sanctification, we actually cooperate with God to grow in our sanctification. It doesn't just happen to us like justification does. Justification is made perfect in this life. We are seen as perfect and righteous. But sanctification is declaring that we have not fully accomplished being perfect in this life. And we're continuing to work on becoming more holy and more righteous. Justification is the exact same for every Christian. Every Christian is fully justified to the same amount. But sanctification is greater in some people than others because of their intentionality to want to become more like Jesus. There are three different stages of sanctification. So let's talk about what are these progressional stages of sanctification. One, first, sanctification has a definite beginning, and that's at regeneration. Remember, regeneration is new birth. And so it's a moral change that occurs at your, at your birth of becoming a new believer. Paul says in Titus 3.5 that there is a washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the moment you are born again, you are given a renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
and we can't continue to love sin like we might have loved sin or love a habit that we know is wrong, our pattern of life will start to change. And that's according to 1 John 3, 9. And this is because the power of a new life is now within us through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can help us to overcome sin in our life. This will actually change our primary love from the world and even ourself to having desires that are more Christ-like so that we can grow in the sanctification. So it begins at our regeneration or our new birth, but then the second point is sanctification increases throughout our life. Our task is to grow more and more in our sanctification and becoming like Jesus. Romans 6, 19 says, Now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And then Paul also talks to the Colossians about how they are to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. So we're seeing this renewal, this change that keeps happening as believers. Sanctification involves becoming more like God in our thoughts, not just in our words and our behaviors. Third, sanctification is completed at death for our souls. So our soul is fully sanctified at death. And then when the Lord returns, our bodies will be fully sanctified because we will get new glorified bodies. So first it's your soul that's completely sanctified. And then when Christ gives you a new body, a glorified body, your body will be completely sanctified. When Christ returns, it says in Philippians 3.21, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So we know that God promises that he will completely sanctify us in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. So we're not passive in it, but in the end, when we die, he will complete that sanctification process. So here's what's tricky. There are verses that might seem like we are expected to be fully sanctified right now, that we should be able to live without sin completely right now, but that is taking these verses out of context. So I want to show you these verses because there are people that would say, oh, I am without sin. And that it would be unbiblical to say that on this side of heaven, we are without sin. Matthew 5.48 says, we are to be perfect as God is perfect. So this really what it's doing is it's just telling us the standard. We're supposed to be perfect as God is perfect. And clearly we are not. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, We are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Makes it sound like we ourselves can become holy, but we can't do that without God. These verses show that God's moral purity is the standard to which we are to aim and to which God does hold us accountable. But that's why it's good we're justified, right? Because we're not perfect and we can't attain perfect holiness on this side of heaven. So people misinterpret 1 John 3, 9 to think it means that we can be sinless. It says here, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
And then it goes on in 1 John 5.18 and says, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So if these verses meant Christians are not going to sin anymore, then this would be true for everyone who is born of God. And we know that's not the case, right? I don't know one single Christian that's perfect, right? Hang out with them enough and you're going to see some kind of immaturity or sin in their life, right? So we know that not everyone born of God is sinless. We cannot be morally perfect in this life. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And 1 John 1.8 reiterates this when John says, If we say we have no sin, we actually deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it is not good to go around saying, look, I have arrived, I'm perfect, I have no sin, glory to God. Even if you're giving God the glory, not your own, it's still wrong theology. So the goal on this side of heaven is not to let sin reign in our bodies or have dominion over us. That is what we are trying to overcome. And because the Holy Spirit's in us, we can overcome it. Though sanctification will never be completed in this life, we should never stop increasing our sanctification in this life. It means when we have overcome, let's say, an outward sin, we're going to start working on those inward sins of pride, selfishness, lack of courage, lack of sharing the gospel with others, laziness, a failure to trust God in all that he promises in every situation, maybe judging someone in your heart, even if you never say it out loud. So there's always somewhere else we can grow in. So let's talk about what's God's role, and then we'll talk about what's our role when it comes to sanctification. God and believers cooperate together in our sanctification, but mainly it is a work of God. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So God is the one that will sanctify us completely. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And one way he does this is through discipling us and disciplining us when we're not obedient. Now, we also see that all three persons of the Trinity are part of our sanctification. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 shows that God the Father is the one who equips us to do his will which means to become perfect because we're in doing what he wants us to do. But then it says that Jesus is the one that earned our sanctification for us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that God made Christ to be our wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. That's all from Jesus, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Jesus is also our example. When you see 1 Peter 2.21, it said, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps or become more like Jesus. So that's Jesus' role. But the Holy Spirit is the one who works in us to change us and sanctify us to live a holier life. 1 Peter 1.2 says, sanctification of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that sanctifies us. And then Paul says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Also, it's the Holy Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit in our life, the character that we see in Galatians 5.22. So the Trinity is committed to helping us overcome sin and temptations on this side of heaven. But what is our role? In sanctification. 
Well, we have a bit of a more passive role in which we depend on God to sanctify us, but we also have an active role in which we are striving to obey God and take steps that will increase our sanctification. So how do we do that? What would that look like? What would be our role in our sanctification? Well, we need to first trust God that he wants to sanctify us, and we invite him to do that. We ask him, sanctify me in this specific area. And then we invite the Holy Spirit to change us. Give me the power to say no to the sin. Give me the wisdom what to say or do. Renew my mind so I don't think these things. So you're inviting the Holy Spirit to be a part of the specific areas you want to be sanctified in. Paul knew that we were dependent on the Holy Spirit to change us because this is what he said in Romans 8, 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, I'm going to read that again. So first of all, it said it's by the Spirit, right? He said, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live eternally. But what if I read it to you this way? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see how it's both? It's both. It's by the Spirit, but you're also putting to death the deeds of the body. You have to want to do it. You have to be intentional and say, I need help not to gossip. I need help to love my husband. I need help to forgive this friend. I need help to be bold in evangelism. Holy Spirit, help me. So it is by the Spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body, and then we will live. So we are in conjunction with the Spirit. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says we are called to strive. I mean, that takes effort, right? We are called to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says that we are to abstain from sexual immorality and so obey the will of God. And the will of God is our sanctification in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And then Peter tells his readers in 2 Peter 1.5, make every effort to grow in your character that you would become more godly. So we definitely see verses that say, this is intentional. You can't stay passive as a Christian. You're just going to church alone just reading your Bible alone won't actually sanctify you. It's not just getting the input of what you should know. It's actually engaging in partnership with the Holy Spirit saying, I want to change in this way. I can't do it on my own. Please, I want to get rid of my flesh and be filled with the Spirit so that I can change this area of my life. So we do need to begin. How do we grow in our sanctification? It does begin by reading the Bible so we know what area to obey, right? We do need to know what the Word of God says. And then we ask the Spirit to empower us to walk in Him and not our flesh. We want to be in fellowship where we can experience His grace as well as truth. And we want to grow in self-discipline and self-control. So let's talk about how sanctification happens in your whole being. What, how, do, how do we see this play out? Well, first, let's talk about our intellect, okay? Romans 12.2 says that we are transformed or sanctified by the renewing of our mind. So we need to change our minds on certain things. 
And then 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we must take every thought captive to obey Christ. Oh, my, that thought was not loving. Oh, that thought was judging. Oh, that's, that thought isn't loving myself. I'm not loving myself how God loves me, right? And so we need to say, I need help to renew my mind. So our intellect and then our emotions. Our emotions need to grow in sanctification. Some of us are like, oh, but I, God made me an emotional person. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that, right? Well, some people struggle with their thoughts in their mind. Some people struggle with managing their emotions. You know, we all have different things that we have to work on in our sanctification. Maybe we need to learn how to love unconditionally, have joy in all circumstances, have peace that passes all understanding, or have patience with those that really wear us down. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our soul. We're not to love the world or the things of the world. And we want to put away negative emotions such as bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, gossip. So we want to think about how can our emotions be sanctified. Then we talk about our will must be sanctified and how we actually make decisions in life. We need them to be conformed to the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. Sanctify me to want to do your will and not my will. Sanctification affects our actual spirit. We are to consider how to be holy in body and spirit in 1 Corinthians 7, 34. So we want to have our spirits be sanctified. And then our physical bodies as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your physical body needs to be sanctified. This is a very powerful verse. I have said this before in other classes, but this really destroys the argument, at least for Christians, my body, my choice. Because right here it says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our bodies need to be sanctified because they are a temple of the Holy Spirit. They are not ours that we get to do with whatever we want. And that is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. We should want to grow in our sanctification in order to please God and to express our love for him. That is our motivator. Not because we're afraid of condemnation, but because we love him and we want to please him. It'll help our conscience to be clear before him. And we could be used more for God's purposes the more we sanctify our life. When you start discipling someone, when you start sharing your faith with a neighbor, your life is on a microscope, right? I mean, they just want to see, how are you going to respond to this? How are you going to act to that? What's your tone of voice? And so the more we are sanctified, the better witness we can have with the people around us. I mean, another motivating factor is we don't want God to be displeased. He, he does grieve sin and we don't want discipline, right? As much as we can avoid it. And we want to see a heavenly reward. There is a reward for pursuing sanctification on this side of heaven. We will have a deeper walk with God. When there's sin in our life and we don't care about changing that part of our life, there is 
a hindrance of going deeper with the Lord. But the more we say, keep changing me, keep making me more like you, the more intimate you will be with God and you will have more peace and you will have more joy. So sanctification is way worth it, even though sometimes it does feel like, oh, I have to give up this one thing that I actually really enjoy. So now we're gonna switch to a more related topic and how the Holy Spirit helps us with our sanctification. And kind of the question that you hear in some churches of do we need a second filling? Do we need to be baptized in the Spirit? Or is it enough to invite the Spirit to empower us daily and ask us to grow and overcome our flesh? So first let's talk about what does the term baptism in the Holy Spirit mean? And does it mean something different than being filled and empowered with the Spirit? Or are they all the same meaning? This question concerns whether the Holy Spirit empowers a person at the point of conversion or does someone receive the Holy Spirit after conversion. People on both sides of this view agree that some kind of second experience has happened to many people after conversion. It might have even happened to you where at some point you experienced something a little more significant than the moment you came to Christ. And so we got to figure out how do we understand this experience, but in light of scripture. And what we have to be careful of is sometimes people say, well, I experienced this, so I'm going to create a theology to support my experience. But we have to be careful of that because, you know, Satan can appear as, a, as, an, as an angel of light and deceive us as well as his minions. And so we want to be careful to not just say, this is my experience, so I'm going to try to find a way to theologically make it work, okay? So we're going to first talk about what more the Pentecostal charismatic groups believe to better understand how they would understand this term. Pentecostals teach Christians can be uh, two types of Christians. You're either an ordinary Christian or you are a sanctified believer, otherwise known as a spirit-filled believer. So you're either not spirit-filled or you are spirit-filled. You're either an ordinary believer or not an ordinary believer. I came across this when I sold books door-to-door -door in North Carolina, and there was a huge movement of the holiness denomination. And I remember I would be sharing Jesus with these people, and they're like, wow, you love Jesus, but, but you don't speak in tongues? But you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit as if I was missing out on something because I had not had the second filling, according to them, to be this sanctified or spirit-filled believer. So often people of these persuasions will ask you, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And you're like, well, I don't know, what does that mean? You know, if you're not from that background, what are they asking? So the challenge in this is that it is suggesting that Christians are in two groups and that's gonna cause division in the body of Christ and it's gonna cause hierarchy in the body of Christ. And God talks all about unity in the body of Christ. He talks about different spiritual gifts, but those spiritual gifts still don't create divisions. It's supposed to bring unity and edification for the body of Christ, right? So this is a challenge that, that they would have to explain. What, you're putting people in two groups. There are not two levels of Christianity in the Bible. There are degrees of sanctification or spiritual maturity, and the Holy Spirit does do that in each believer's life, but there is no Christian without the Holy Spirit in them. If you have decided to follow Jesus, you have been given the Holy Spirit. Once you have the Holy Spirit, you cannot have more of him, 
but you can ask him to empower you more. That is key, okay? You cannot, once God is in you, you are not going to get more of God in you, but you can ask the God that's in you to empower you more because you're submitting to him and saying, work in my life. But their view is more like, Holy Spirit's out here. I might only have this much of the Holy Spirit. Come, fill me. I need more Holy Spirit. You see it? It's like they're asking for the God out there to come in there. Well, what are they just leaking out the Holy Spirit and, and, and any more? Versus all of the God you need is in you, but you're submitting to him to have him empower your life. So your life is overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit, with your spiritual gifts, and to influence the world for Christ. You see the difference? Once you have the Holy Spirit, you can't have more of him. So we don't see in the epistles that Paul wrote or Peter wrote, he never said this, Paul or Peter, you all need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's never once mentioned. Paul never says to a church, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not once in any of his letters. Pentecostals believe in the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit after you become a Christian, and they believe that this is going to give you greater blessings in your life. And they take this view from Acts 1.5, where Jesus said the disciples would be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then when they are baptized in the Spirit, they would be empowered to witness. So the disciples in the book of Acts did receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Okay, that is very clear in Acts 2.4. And this was subsequent to their conversion. It did. They already were followers of Jesus. He already had rose, risen from the dead. They believe in him. And then they waited. And so they did have this experience that the Pentecostals are expecting all of us to have. This is where they get it. Okay. So why would we not believe that? Well, they take the support for this position of first being born again and then later being baptized from three stories in the book of Acts. And their reasoning is if it was common in the New Testament Christians in the book of Acts, shouldn't it be common for us today? So I'm going to show you these three, because three, if you just heard them teach you these three, you would be right away convinced. <laughs> and I'm going to show you that they don't have the whole context of these three stories in Acts, and that's why we should not be convinced. And I studied these thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly while I was in seminary. And so this is why I do not have the persuasion of how they, they take the book of Acts. We need to understand the book of Acts was the beginning of the new covenant of the church. And so the Holy Spirit was working differently. And if what we saw were the experiences of the church in the book of Acts were necessary for future churches, Paul and Peter and John would have written them in all of their letters if it was so significant. And certain things we see in the book of Acts are not required or taught in any further epistle to help these churches learn how to walk with Jesus. And so that is why we need to be careful to not just take certain experiences that we see in the book of Acts and then create a theology off of them only from the book of Acts. That's where it gets dangerous. So that makes sense. And so that's why we're going to go there and interpret these three areas. In Acts 8, the Samaritans believed Philip as he was preaching the good news to them. But only later did they receive the Holy Spirit when Peter and John prayed for them. So the question is, was this a second filling? 
They believed, but then when the laying of hands went on them, that's when they received the Holy Spirit. That's the situation. Well, here's the context of Acts 8. God waited to give the empowering of the Holy Spirit through these two disciples so that it might be evident to the highest leadership in the Jerusalem church that the Samaritans were not second-class citizens but full members of the church. Because Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile, and that's why they were not liked by the Jews or the Gentiles. The point of this was it was to show publicly that the Holy Spirit was not for the Jews only, but was for the Samaritans with whom the Jews hated. And that is why it had to be a second, very evident experience so that those people would see that. Next example is Cornelius in Acts 10. He was a devoted man who prayed to God. But when Peter preached to him, the Holy Spirit was poured out on a Gentile. He was a Gentile convert. The context is that Cornelius was a believer in God, but he was not a believer yet in Christ for his salvation before Peter preached to him. So he received the Holy Spirit when he actually came to Christ. But what Pentecostals will say was, look, he was already a convert, and it wasn't, it wasn't until Peter came that he received the Holy Spirit. No, he was just, and that's why we have to always be clear with the gospel. Hey, just because you believe in God doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Do you understand Jesus, right? And that's what Peter did with Cornelius, and that's when Cornelius received the Holy Spirit. The third example is in Acts 19. And there were some disciples, they're called disciples, in Ephesus. So that's what makes it a little confusing at first. If they're disciples, who are they disciples of, right? Because the Bible calls them disciples. It says there were some disciples in Ephesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. So second time we're seeing a laying on of hands, which you see in the culture of a lot of churches, to then let me give you the Holy Spirit, right? Let me lay my hand on you and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. This is where they're getting that culture, okay? They laid hands on them and then these disciples in Ephesus received the Holy Spirit. But the context is that these people were disciples of John the Baptist who came before Jesus. They were not yet disciples of Jesus. So again, it's someone that was believing and following someone, but that person was not yet the Savior, They had not heard the gospel of salvation through Christ yet. They had been baptized by John, but they were still waiting for the Messiah. So when they had been told the gospel and those hands were laid on them, it was probably their prayer of conversion. They received the Holy Spirit. So all three of these examples are what Pentecostals use to say, there's got to be a second filling. After Christ, there's got to be a second filling. We've got to lay hands on you. Something has to happen. Then you receive the Holy Spirit. But what actually we see in context is these people were coming to Christ for the first time. And the only one that did appear maybe slightly delayed was for the Samaritans who needed proof that they were part of the kingdom of God as well, since they were not just Jewish. So what does the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit mean in the New Testament, the whole New Testament? There are only seven verses in the New Testament where someone is baptized in or with the Holy Spirit. Four of these verses of the seven are John the Baptist speaking of Jesus and predicting that he will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Not that we're going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. That's four times that John talks about that. 
So it's kind of hard to draw a conclusion from these four verses with respect to what is baptism with the Holy Spirit. Because even commentaries, it doesn't say, John didn't know how Jesus was going to baptize with the Spirit or what it would look like. He was just stating that that's what was going to happen, okay? Then the next two passages that talk about baptism is literally from the Pentecost. Acts 1-5, which we mentioned earlier, was Jesus stating the Spirit would come upon the disciples. And in Acts eleven sixteen, where Peter is remembering that John said Jesus would baptize in the Holy Spirit. So both of these verses show us that baptism in the Holy Spirit happened at Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples. So there's only one remaining verse that's outside the book of Acts, okay, or outside the Gospels. And it's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So they're going to hold on to this one verse that's in an epistle. Here's what it says. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. So this verse is actually implying something different. Paul is saying that this baptism, whether it's in, with, or by the Holy Spirit, made us members of the body of Christ. He is saying it happened to all the Corinthians when they became members of the body of Christ, when they became Christians. So as far as Paul was concerned, baptism in the Holy Spirit occurred at conversion. That is Paul's view. So baptism of the Holy Spirit must refer to the activity of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the Christian life when he gives us new spiritual life at regeneration, born again. That's part of the role of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit refers to all that the Holy Spirit does at the beginning of a Christian's life. When you get the Holy Spirit, when you come to Christ, that's when you're justified. That's when you're born again. That was the regeneration. You couldn't have that without the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just your faith that created this regeneration. It was the Holy Spirit. So let's understand Pentecost a little. Because I think sometimes, unless we're from a Pentecostal background, we don't really talk about Pentecost. So what's the role of Pentecost? Why did this happen this way in the book of Acts? Well, Pentecost marked the beginning of a more powerful work of the Holy Spirit in ordinary believers. Okay, the day of Pentecost was the point of transition between the old covenant work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we have Old Covenant and New Covenant. And this is why we need to be careful not to take the stories of Acts and create theology from them for the church today. It's wiser to look at the epistles, the letters of the church for that. So Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was less powerful work of the Holy Spirit. He would come and go with people. We see that. We saw that with Saul. We saw that David said, what did he say in one of his famous Psalms? Do not let your Holy Spirit be taken away, right? Because he knew back then the Holy Spirit would come and go with people. Think about this. Old Testament, they had little power over Satan. They couldn't cast out demons. I mean, that's not even really talked about in the Old Testament, right? When Jesus came to earth, we saw the new covenant power of the Holy Spirit work. After Jesus' time in the wilderness, it says he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then we see what it could he do? Cast out demons, heal the sick, teach with authority. When Jesus returned to heaven, he was then given the authority after he returned to heaven to pour out the spirit in new fullness and power. So after Pentecost, the disciples had more effective witness in their ministry and had greater victory over sin and Satan. 
Though for them, it was a second experience. We are not going to deny that. For the disciples, it was a second experience. It was because they were living at a time of transition between the old and new covenants. That is why. So right now, we are not living in a transition time in the work of the Holy Spirit. We do not first come to be believers with a weak old covenant work of the Holy Spirit, and then we're waiting at some point for the Holy Spirit to come onto us and then we're now new covenant believers. No, you are a new covenant believer the moment you believe in Jesus. So you are in the same position as the Christians in Corinth, that the moment we become Christians, we are each one in the spirit and we are baptized in the body of believers. So how can we understand people that say, but I had a second filling, I experienced it. I was in this prayer room and, and I prayed for a filling of the Holy Spirit and I experienced it. We're not going to, we can't go and deny someone's experience, right? So what, what was that? Well, I want you to hear about how Pentecostals teach others to prepare for baptism in the spirit. It's amazing and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. Listen to this. This is what they teach. Confess all known sin. Shouldn't we all do that? Repent of any remaining sin in your life. Fully turn from it. Wow, we talked about how important repentance was a few weeks ago, right? Trust the Christ to forgive those sins. Trust Christ to forgive those sins. Then commit every area of your life to the Lord's service. Wow, full surrender. Yield yourself fully to him. And then believe that Christ can empower you in a new way and equip you for ministry. Wow. That's really good, isn't it? That's really good. And so after this preparation, after they're asking someone to do all of those things, they are encouraged to ask Jesus to baptize them in the spirit. It's interesting, right? But what does this preparation do? They're surrendering to the spirit. They are guaranteed significant growth in the Christian life. Surrender brings joy and peace. When you submit to the Spirit, you're going to be able to live out the fruit of the Spirit and have a greater ministry. There is joy when we confess our sins and turn. There's freedom, right? You've seen people, I mean, what if this was really when they converted? It was really their first true surrender. It was really their first time of saying, I want you to change my life. I want you to truly be Lord of my life because I have surrendered everything. And that is when the Holy Spirit came in them. Maybe that was their true conversion. So I want us to be careful to not be too critical when they are so concerned if you've been baptized in the Spirit. Really what they care about is, are you living a surrendered life? And do you understand the power that comes when we submit our life to the Spirit and He can use us for amazing things in this world? That's really what they're saying. They're using a different term and they think it might be a separate filling. I might have the persuasion that that might be when people really come to Christ. Either way, we can be united that, hey, we need the Holy Spirit in our life and we need to be submitted to Him and He's gonna use our life for great things. So let's not go too divisive on this doctrine. So are there other biblical expressions such as filling with the Spirit that are better suited to describe an empowering with the Holy Spirit that occurs after conversion? So we would propose that what happens to these individuals what the, is that they were filled or empowered by the Spirit through their faith and their surrender. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, 
not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. So he's using a present tense imperative verb that could be more explicitly be translated this way. Be continually being filled with the Spirit. It's not that you lose the Spirit, but it's this continual surrender of Spirit. I want you to use me today. I want you to use me this afternoon. I want you to use me this evening. I want you to use me in my life with my neighbors, with my family, with my coworkers, things like that. He's implying it's something that should be repeatedly happening to Christians. This filling or empowering results in increasing sanctification and increased power to share Jesus with others. The Spirit sanctifies us when we invite him to sanctify us through his empowerment. So think of this. Even Peter, okay, he was at Pentecost, so he received that first extra filling, right, of the Holy Spirit. But listen to this. Later... He had to be filled with the Holy Spirit before speaking to the Sanhedrin. In Acts 4.8, he asked for the Spirit to empower him before he spoke to the Sanhedrin. Then he was filled again with the Holy Spirit after the group of Christians he was meeting with had prayed. So it's not that the Spirit came and went from believers like the Old Testament, but that the person is inviting the Spirit to empower him in moments of ministry. It's not a one-time event, but should occur over and over. So it's not like, oh, did you get that spirit once? It's a continual, dynamic relationship we have with the Holy Spirit. Though we never lose the Holy Spirit, we can grow to contain more of his fullness and power. So here's the analogy I like to use. Chocolate milk analogy. You have some white milk, and you're going to get your Hershey syrup, and you're going to pour that Hershey syrup in that white milk. Well... We know it can become chocolate milk, but unless you stir up that chocolate, it's not going to taste much like chocolate milk. And that's sort of how it is with the Holy Spirit. Once you become a believer, you become chocolate milk. The Holy Spirit is poured into your life. You don't need to put more chocolate milk in it, but once you stir it up, you're really going to taste like chocolate milk to everyone around you. But what happens if you keep that milk on the counter for a few hours or for half a day? That chocolate will settle again at the bottom. And it doesn't mean I need to pour more Hershey syrup in. All it means is I need to restir it up. I'm not getting more of the Holy Spirit. I'm just submitting to him again. Oh, I kind of took over. Oh, I kind of forgot about you. Oh, I became independent. Let me stir you up. And so I feel like that's a very helpful analogy of our persuasion that you don't need more of the Holy Spirit. You just need to stir him up in your life over and over and over again. So one final caveat on this topic is that being filled with the Holy Spirit does not always result in speaking in tongues. Tongues is a spiritual gift that is not given to everyone. And again, for some people in the Pentecostal view, they would say that if you receive the Holy Spirit, you should be able to speak in tongues. And they again look at the day of Pentecost and how when the Holy Spirit fell on them, all of them started speaking in tongues. But why did they do that? It was so that the nations that were all there would gather and hear the gospel. So it wasn't a private prayer language to God. They were actually speaking other languages that they had never learned how to speak so that the gospel could go forth right then and there. That was the reason of the Holy Spirit. So to focus more on, oh, the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you get tongues, but the Holy Spirit's going to empower you to share Jesus in a powerful way, in a way that you might not even be ready for, but he's going to start speaking out of your mouth so you could share Jesus with others. Let's go to a, a next topic now, the, our last topic of the day. What is perseverance of the saints? Pretty much perseverance of the saints means can you lose your salvation or not? 
The perseverance of the saints means that all of those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Okay, so there's two parts of this definition of perseverance of the saints. God's power will keep us in the faith, but we also must continue in the faith as evidence of one who is truly saved. So God's power keeps us in the faith, but also we must continue in the faith as evidence one is truly saved. So this is a topic that Christians do not agree on, okay? This is another persuasion level view, okay? You don't, we can agree to disagree on this and still go to heaven, okay? But this is important to wrestle with because we know people that have stopped walking in the faith, or it seems they have stopped walking in the faith. What are we to do with that? And so we want to think through just kind of the views of what this presents. Many people with Arminian tradition, that would be Methodist or Lutheran backgrounds, they have held traditionally that it's possible for someone who is truly born again to lose his salvation. That would be the Methodist and Lutheran view. But Reformed or Baptist tradition, not all Baptists are Reformed, but Reformed and Baptist traditions often hold that it's not possible for someone who is truly born again to lose their salvation. So there are different evangelical groups that hold different views on this. Okay, so it's okay if at the end of the day we don't all agree here on this, but we still want to, to dialogue about it. So let's first see how God's power promises to keep us in the faith. In John 6, 38 through 40, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So it seems hard to avoid the conclusion that everyone who truly believes in Christ will remain a Christian up until the day of the final resurrection into the blessings of the presence of God. These are given to the Son by the Father. He says they're not going to be lost. They will be found. They're not going to be lost. We also see this affirmation in John 10, 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. But look at that. They follow him. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And then he said, they will never perish meaning that those who are followers of Jesus, his sheep have been given eternal life and they will never be separated from Christ. And then John 3:36 says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Starting now, you have eternal life. It can't be taken away from you. And then another evidence of being secure in your salvation is that it says that the Holy Spirit will seal you and this is an act of God's guarantee that we have received the inheritance that's been promised to us. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So this should give us, at least, when we struggle with, oh, my own life, my own wrestlings. All right, I, I know 
I hope you know that you, you just have this evidence of the Holy Spirit in you so you know that you are secure in Christ. But there's also verses that we need to look at that say that we must persevere to the end in order to be saved. What does that mean? So Matthew 10, 22 says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It doesn't mean your good works save you, but maintaining your faith is important. Jesus was warning people to not fall away during a time of persecution. It will be very interesting if we start to have a persecuted church in America, who is going to fall away? And we need to be willing to say, were they actually believers in the first place? Colossians 1.22 says that Christ has reconciled us to God in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But then listen to this. If indeed we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel we heard. So those who do not continue in the faith show that maybe there was no genuine faith in their hearts in the first place. And then Hebrews 3.14 says similarly, for we have come to share Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Do we hold our confidence in Christ that Christ can really save us to the end? Now, some people will misinterpret Hebrews 3.12 as Christians losing their salvation. Here's what this says. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So it's tricky because he calls them brother, brothers, but then he talks about this evil, unbelieving heart. So it kind of feels like an antithesis. What do we do with this Hebrews verse? So he calls them brothers because our churches are what's called the visible church. People that faithfully sit by you in your pews, we're the visible church. We visibly go to church. We're churchgoers, okay? That's the visible church. But if they have an evil, unbelieving heart, which is something we cannot see, that is not going to be visible, maybe, in the church, and they probably will fall away. So when people leave the fellowship of believers, John says this in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us in the body of Christ, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. This is hard. Do you not see what has happened to, quote unquote, the visible church since COVID, right? How many people are no longer caring about church, being in church, being in the body of believers, wanting to grow? Church became back burner because it almost felt like it had to be for a season. And for some people, they're fine keeping it there. That's concerning. That's dangerous because where was their faith? They should have been longing to get back to church. So we need to realize that some who have regularly associated with our visible churches may not be true believers or a part of what we call the invisible church. The invisible church are the true believers that only God really knows. We can't decide, oh, you're the visible church. You're the invisible church. We don't get to determine that. But somewhere in this visible church is an invisible church. That's for sure real and true and solid, okay? It's not always clear who in the church has genuine saving faith 
and who has just intellectual persuasion, but actually no faith in their hearts. And that's what we see. Oh yeah, I believe in my intellect, there's a God. I believe in my intellect, Jesus was here. I might even believe in my intellect, Jesus died on the cross, but there was never a saving faith in their heart. Think of this example, Judas. I mean, he betrayed Christ, but he must have acted almost exactly like the other disciples during those three years that he was with Jesus. Because when Jesus said that one of his disciples would betray him, they didn't all turn around and be like, it's you, Judas. I mean, they didn't. They didn't know which one of them was going to betray him because they all looked like disciples of Jesus. Twelve, his twelve closest buddies in this room. There's like 12 of us or a little more. You just don't know. Those were his closest friends. And Jesus knew, because he knew the invisible church, that even those in a small group might not be able to tell who is going to be the one that walks away. And we just have to be humble with that. So Paul mentions false brothers who were secretly brought in, in Galatians 2, to the church. And he says he was in danger from false brothers in 2 Corinthians 11.26. And see, again, brothers. He's calling them brothers because they're in the visible church, but they're false. They're not really followers of Jesus. They're not really true converts. And he says that they were servants of Satan disguising themselves as servants of righteousness in 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen. And Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So this means some people might know they're deceiving the church, but a lot of people probably think they're part of the church and they're not. How many people have maybe left the church, churches on the back burner, and they think they're still believers, but they actually have no real deep faith and they don't realize it. They don't know it. They, they think they're saved, but they might not be. We don't know. We don't know, right? And that's concerning. These people that went to the Lord and said that they wanted to enter the kingdom. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They seemed to be filled with the Spirit. But what did God say to them? I never knew you. He didn't say, well, I knew you at one time, but then you strayed from me. No, they were powerfully doing things, appearing to be in the visible church. And Jesus said, I never knew you. It wasn't that they left. It's that they never were. There was never a true conversion. We can see this in the parable of the sower in Mark 4, verse 5 and 6. It said, The seed fell on rocky ground, and it immediately sprang up. But when the sun rose, it was scorched, since it had no root. And Jesus said these people heard the word. They actually said they received it with joy, but they had no root in themselves. So when trials came, they fell away. There was no source of life in these plants. There was no true conversion. That example is not they came to faith and then left the faith. It's not a losing salvation verse. It's they had no roots. They had no root in Jesus. They were not connected to the vine. The importance of continuing in the faith is also seen in the parable of the vine and the branches, John 15, 1 through 7. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fires and burned. So though the branches are somehow connected to Jesus and they do give an outward appearance of being genuine branches, 
Their true state is that they're not bearing fruit. They are cut off and they are not part of that tree. So we need to wrestle with that. I was just speaking at ASU this past week and I was showing there are two parables, one's in Matthew and one's in Luke, and it's uh, the parable of the lost sheep. You might be familiar. These two parables are actually to two different audiences and have two slightly different meanings. The first one in Matthew is Jesus talking to his disciples and he is talking about how there is a shepherd and the sheep are on a mountain. Mountain is normally where you're safe, where you could see where the enemies are coming. A mountain is sometimes symbolizing where you're closer to God because God would always land on the mountain, right? To talk to Moses and others. And in this passage, three times he says, leave the 99 to go after those that are astray. He doesn't say lost in the first parable. He says astray those that have gone astray. But it's interesting because at the end it says, so that they might be saved and still be in the kingdom of God. And so you're like, what, can they, can they lose their salvation? No, people have wandered from the church. They have left our church, not to go to another church. They have left being in the body of Christ. And it says we are supposed to go after those people, whether they're our family, our friends, our neighbors, and we are supposed to leave our body of Christ to go after those that have gone astray, whether it's because of sin or guilt, just last week, I was at Neater's preparing for this talk for ASU, and I had these two young Mormon missionary girls right there with their perfect braids, and they're just on their phones. They didn't order anything. They're just there, and this other young girl, also probably early 20s with her boyfriend, comes in, and she's very eclectic, right? All different color hair, all very colorful personality. Well, she sees these two Mormon missionary girls and she goes up to them and she goes, oh, I like your braids. And those girls just in there like, thank you. I'm like, wait, you were supposed to be the missionaries here. This girl's initiating. She even sat down in the booth behind them. So what are you doing today? What are you girls up to? She goes, are you guys missionaries? I mean, you can't call it out any more than that. And they said, yes. And she goes, oh, I wish I could be a missionary, but I'm not bold enough. And I'm thinking, you got it wrong. They're not bold enough. You're bold enough, right? Those two missionary girls didn't know how to handle her. And they got up and left the restaurant. And I said to her, well, I'm a missionary too. I didn't tell her I'm not Mormon. I just, I was like, she might assume that. I said, like, I'm a missionary too. And I said, I said, that was amazing. How, look how you initiated with them, but they weren't willing to even have a conversation with you. And she goes, oh, well, I was raised in the Mormon church and I, I would have loved to have been a, a Mormon missionary, but I have certain things I've done in my life. They would never accept me back. Now, I don't think Mormon is a Christian faith, but it's this idea of somebody that went astray from something they were a part of and feels like they could not be accepted back into the church. That's so many people. And so I said to her, you know what? You don't need to go back to that church. If you want to just meet with me, I'll meet with you once a week and we could be you could be discipled and I can help you grow in your faith. You don't have to go back because I don't want to tell her you shouldn't anyway, you know? <laughs> and I gave her my card. She hasn't, she hasn't called me. She might not. People go astray and they have this reason they feel like they can't come back. Oh, I've had an affair. Oh, I had a divorce and I feel ashamed about that. Oh, I had an abortion. I don't know if I could go back into the doors of a church and we can bring them back. But the second passage in Luke, three times it says lost. And he was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes who was judging him because he was eating with the sinners of the day, the tax collectors. And so he had a whole completely different audience. He was trying to prove something to the judgmental Pharisees that we are supposed to go out and reach the lost. And I think whether you're on the view someone truly believed and then has left the faith, or and can they still be saved? 
or not. What I do know is Jesus is saying we need to go after them. Whether we think they're just an astray Christian or they're truly a lost Christian, the parable remains the same that we are called to go care for them. And that's what we need to do. So whether you're on one side of perseverance of the saints or not, can someone lose their salvation or not, it really doesn't matter. What matters is, are you doing something about the people that are not in the room, that are not in your church, that are not in your small group? That's what matters. So what can give us genuine assurance? How can we have assurance of our own faith? You can answer these questions if you're a true believer. This is a test for you and you alone. Do you have a present trust in Christ for your salvation? Do you trust him today for your salvation? Do today you have trust in Christ to forgive your sins, to take you without blame into heaven forever? Do you have confidence in your heart that he has saved you? If so, have peace. Is there current evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you being led by the Spirit into a path of obedience to God's will? Are you seeing growth and the fruit of the Spirit in your life, in your character? Do you sense these attitudes in your heart to want to grow and become more like Him? Do others closest to you in your life see these traits in your life? Is your life positively impacting others around you? Are you continually accepting the sound teaching of the Word? Are you contributing to your relationship with Jesus? Are you obeying God's commands? We don't do those things perfectly, but if you can say yes to that, have peace. Do I see a long-term pattern of growth in my Christian life? No matter if you became a Christian a year ago or 20 years ago, are you seeing growth in your life? 2 Peter 1, 5 says we're to grow in virtue, knowledge. That's what you're doing here, right? Self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And then in verse 10, he says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And for people that have backslidden, this could be a warning that they may not really have been saved because their life is now evident that they're not saved. They're not loving Jesus. They're not caring about their sin. If they're not trusting Jesus or obeying him, they don't have assurance of salvation. Let's just put it that way. You can't live in your sin and love it and have assurance of your salvation. And so we should encourage them, whether they're a wayward Christian or someone that's lost, that they should turn to Christ in repentance and ask for forgiveness of their sin. It's the same thing. Whether you're a wayward Christian or you're lost, you repent, ask forgiveness, turn from your sin. And so here's a way to self-assess. Some change in one's life can give some assurance of salvation. But if you see greater change in your life, you're going to have stronger assurance of your salvation. But only God knows with absolute certainty who is saved and who is lost. We cannot know for sure. So even if your theology is people can lose their salvation and you think a friend was once a believer and now seems to no longer be, you would actually give them the same counsel as a non-believer. You would say, you don't appear to be a follower of Jesus now. So repent and trust in Christ for your salvation, to have assurance of your relationship with him. Because it's not enough to have once walked in front of a church after a gospel sermon or to have been baptized and obeyed that step of faith. If one's life never truly grows in Christ and becomes more like him, then there is no assurance of salvation. So let us pray for those who have left the faith that have backslidden or left the church, that they might repent 
and turn to Christ and walk with him the rest of their days. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a deep, deep conversation because this is not theology. These are people we love. Children, spouses, friends, family, extended family that we love so desperately and sometimes we feel so helpless to know how do we have a conversation? They seem so hostile, so gone. They seem like they love their sin. And God, only you know if they are a follower of you that has gone astray for a season or if they're truly lost and never understood truly the gospel. But Lord, you call us to go, to leave the 99, to go after that one. And that takes time and effort. And that takes being empowered by the Holy Spirit to know what to say and what to do and how to love and how to speak truth and how to invite them back into the fold. Would you show us who to do that with, God? Would you show us how to love those that have walked away or who have never said yes to you in order to bring them back to you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.